You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right. Yes. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Good morning to all of you. Good to see you. For those of you online, good to see you as well. We have been on a journey over the last 12 weeks, have we not? Uh, We are wrapping up this morning a sermon series that we have titled, All Systems Go, a sermon series on essentially systematic theology. We've been examining the scriptures in their entirety to try to understand the major doctrines of our faith from a holistic biblical perspective, not just in in passages here and there, but what does the whole of the Bible say? We began with three weeks, if you think all the way back, on really more of why we need this sermon series. We talked about what is happening in the world and why the secular worldview is at odds with ours, and we talked about postmodernism and critical theory and a variety of other things that kind of fall under that umbrella, and how these ideas are are counter to the Christian worldview and have actually begun to, in some ways, leak into the church. And, and the problem there is that they're not at all consistent with the gospel, with the biblical, the biblical worldview, the biblical lens, if you will. And, and that is happening, I believe, because Christians, in general, are so ill-equipped to think biblically, to think and formulate their thoughts around and through the lens of Scripture. And so that kind of set the stage for why we need a sermon series like this. Why do we need to know the systems of theology? Because without them, we are lost and we make really bad decisions. Amen? And so then we hit the ground running. And we've talked about a lot of different systems of theology, the doctrine of God. We talked about the doctrine of Christ, which we call Christology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which we call pneumatology, the doctrine of the church, we spent actually three weeks on, uh, which we call ecclesiology, the doctrine of total depravity, that was a fun one, wasn't it, which falls under the, uh, the category of anthropology, and then we talked about the doctrine of Satan, Satanology, and how we need to understand who the enemy of God is and how he works, how he operates, what he is capable of and what he is not capable of. And then last week, we talked about the doctrine of salvation, which we call soteriology. And so it is fitting then, I think, as we come to an end uh, of this sermon series, that we close with the doctrine of the end, the doctrine of the last things, or as we call it, eschatology, eschatology. Now, I think that eschatology is particularly confusing for people because of all of the terms that fall under this doctrine. There are so many terms that we use when we talk about eschatology that really confuse people because they have no idea what they mean. So when I say something like the millennial reign, all the baby boomers are like, is that when all the millennials take over the world? What is this? Right? This sounds terrible. Sounds like a ter- nothing will get done, right? Um, when I say pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib, what do I mean by that? Dispensational or historic premillennialism. These are terms like I've already lost some of you. You're like, what is happening? What is he saying? Is this English? So it's confusing. It reminds me of when Jesus comes back for the second time and he comes before the people of earth and he says, who do you say that I am? And the people say, you are the eschatological manifestation of our deepest needs. 
the enigma that gives sense to all of our interpersonal relationships, the cosmological fabric that keeps our minds and our world bound together in perfect harmony, anticipating a final consummation. And Jesus responds, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> captures how a lot of you, I think, feel about eschatology. I have no idea what that means. What are you talking about right now? So before we can have this discussion, we need to understand the terms, don't we? We need to understand what these terms mean before we can have a meaningful discussion about them. And so rather than going through the Old Testament, New Testament survey and church history, we will talk about some of those things for sure. But I want to give you up front four major parts of eschatology, four biblical concepts within eschatology. We're going to define each of the terms as we go and then try to give you a biblical understanding of each of them. And, and I'm even going to give you a few different options for one in particular. There, there's specifically one with regard to the rapture that we'll get to in a moment moment, that there are multiple ways of thinking about the rapture. And, and so I'm going to try to be fair with each of them, give you some of the arguments for each of them, and ultimately tell you where I land on those. And uh, I'll just be upfront as well that this of all the, the messages that we've done is by far the most non-essential doctrine for you to learn. And what I mean by that is this, that when we talked about, for example, Christology, you need to know who Christ is. You need to get Christ right. If you don't get Christ right, you get salvation wrong. So you got to understand who Jesus is. you got to understand how God has revealed himself. Whether you are post-trib or pre-trib or whatever, like if you're pre-trib, maybe you developed your eschatology from left behind, but uh, you're still going to heaven, right? You're still going to heaven. This is not a, an essential doctrine for you to really buy into, otherwise eternity is at stake. So I want to invite you to think critically about these things. But I also want to invite you to have a little bit of fun with it as well. And, and if you end up in a different camp than I am in by the end of this, it's not the end of the world. See what I did there? It was, it was, it was pathetic, I'm going to be honest. It was terrible. I'm not, I'm not proud of it. I, I did say, i got to mention this before we jump in. Last week I said that I'm going to say some things for some of you that, it, that you're, you're probably going to be in disagreement with because it's different than what you've heard before. And some of you may even throw tomatoes at me. I made that comment. And and Warren and Donna Wilson were, were so nice before first service to at least package their tomatoes up in a bag, and they just sort of lightly tossed them to me. Um, they tossed them to me before the message, though, so I kind of feel like I wasn't given a fair shake there, uh, but uh, we're, we're going to have fun this morning. Let's talk first about the Great Tribulation, the Great Tribulation. How many of you have heard that term before? Yeah, probably most of you. It's a very popular term. What is the Great Tribulation? The Bible teaches that as bad as the world is today because of sin, there will be a day unlike any other time in the history of humanity marked by unparalleled tribulation, unseen before this moment. Jesus in Mark chapter 13, verses 7 and 8 says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning birth pains, Jesus says. So there's a coming time when God will pour out his judgment onto the earth in such a way that it will, it will be unlike anything that we have ever seen before. Okay, we have wars, we have kingdoms rising, we have, we have earthquakes, we have famines. All of these things are happening right now. Or are they not? They've been happening for the last 2,000 years. Jesus says, the end is not right now. Stop looking at earthquakes and wars and going, oh, the end is coming. They're not, it's not here yet. These are the 
birth pains, he says, the beginning birth pains. He says in Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be, this is where we get the term, great tribulation, such as has been or not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. The Old Testament has spoken of this time as well. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. So even Daniel, thousands of years before Christ, is prophesying of a time that is coming that will be unlike anything that we have ever seen before. Paul talks about it as well, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So when you hear the term great tribulation, that is what it means, a future time when things get really, really bad. Now, I want to say as an add-on that uh, this term comes up a lot, especially when we are in the midst of intense political or social turmoil, right? So even over the last couple of years, you have probably heard people on TV or on YouTube or wherever go, these are all signs of the tribulation. Maybe they are, and maybe they're not. We have no real way of knowing. I do know this that over the last 2,000 years since Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, we have seen wars, destruction, atomic bombs, government overthrows, revolutions, lands being conquered, churches being burned, the crusades, and a whole laundry list of other really bad stuff. And every single time in every one of those moments in history, there were people in the church going, signs of the times. And of course, it wasn't. Here's what I do know. Here's what I do know for sure. Number one is that uh, Jesus says a wicked and adulterous generation is that who looks for a sign. If your eyes are focused on signs, your eyes are focused on the wrong thing. You should be looking towards the sign giver, Jesus himself. Number two, I do know this, that when it does happen, you're going to know it. There's not, we're not going to be talking about whether or not these are signs of the times. It'll be very clear that that is what is happening. So the first biblical concept that we got to get our minds around for eschatology is that there will one day in the future be a great tribulation. Number two, the rapture. The rapture. Now this term has to do with the second coming of Christ when he comes again, uh, not as the lamb like he did the first time, but as the lion the second time. There are two things that Christ will accomplish when he comes a second time. Number one, the Scripture says that He will bring to Himself every believer who has ever lived. And number two, He will execute judgment on both the enemy and the earth who are following the enemy. Okay? So the rapture, when I say the rapture, that has to do with that first one. Bringing every believer to Himself. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So look, one of the signs of, of the, the end is when you see grandma and grandpa and great-grandma and great-grandpa coming out of the grave and all of a sudden floating into the sky. That's a sign, right? That's a biblical sign. It says the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So understand the order here that the, that the Bible is presenting. The trumpet is going to sound. 
Christ will return. The dead in Christ will rise first. All of us will then meet them in the clouds, in the sky, with Jesus himself, and we will be with him from that point on for eternity. Now, in that moment, the text tells us something else happens as well. We are immediately transformed into our heavenly bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last Trumpet. Now hold on to that phrase, last trumpet, because that's imagery that's used in several other places. It's going to be important. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We shall be changed, transformed, if you will, at the last trumpet. Now, if you take note of this, in the book of Revelation, there are seven trumpets. So what Paul is saying here is at the last one, that's when Christ returns. He will rapture us and change us, transform us. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The reality is, folks, is that the rapture, Christ coming and bringing us up with Him, is a promise that we have had since Jesus walked the earth in the flesh. John chapter 14, verse 3, a passage you've probably heard before. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. And where are we going with him? A big, big house, right? <laughs> Y'all know. If you know, you know. Now, Christ has been saying this for a long time. A long time, since he was in the flesh. The question for us is not whether or not it's going to happen. The question is when. When does this happen? When does the rapture take place? And there are so many people throughout history that have tried to figure this thing out, right? They've talked about, about certain calendar dates and adding up the numbers and, oh, but they didn't have a leap year, so then it's going to be this year, and, and, right? And they're trying to figure that out. There's one in particular pastor, author in the uh, world today who has written, I think now, several books on blood moons. Oh, the blood moons are going to come, and this is going to tell us that Jesus is coming. And the reality is, we don't even have to speculate about when he's coming back. We don't. It is coded into the fabric of Scripture. Bet you didn't notice this. I'm going to blow your minds here this morning. The, the Bible tells us when Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Now hang on to the gravity of that one for a minute. But the Father only. Not even Jesus knows when he's coming back. The Father and the Father alone knows. Now folks, just, just use reason here for a minute. If Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back, I think it's safe to say no one else does either. Don't buy the blood moon book or whatever. It's not right. I can almost certainly tell you it's not right. Now, I love to talk about this. This is a, a fun one, speaking of books. Uh, and, and you've heard this before if you've been in any of my classes. There's a guy named Edgar Wisenant who was a NASA engineer who uh, was also a Bible teacher, who wrote a book that gained a great amount of popularity in the 1980s called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. Now, we laugh, but it was a popular book. And uh, it even started getting weekly updates near the end of 1988 on TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, so you know it was true. I mean, it was on TBN. And so it sold like crazy, and it did really, really well until guess which day? 
January 1st, 1989. <laughs> now, not to be outdone by himself, Edgar Wisnant wrote another book, cleverly called 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1989. Do you know what the 89th reason was? It didn't happen in 1988. People actually bought this book, folks. This is why we need all systems go. This is why we need systematic theology. You would not be wasting your money on a book like that. Now, one question that does come up a lot, and I think this is where we can have some discussion, is when does the rapture take place in relation to the Great Tribulation? Okay, this is a, a question that, that uh, theologians, scholars, uh, pastors have wrestled with for a long time. Does the rapture, when Christ comes and takes His church up with Him, does it happen before the Great Tribulation? Does it happen in the middle of the Great Tribulation? Or does it happen at the end of the Great Tribulation? These positions, the three of them, are known as pre-trib, before, mid-trib, in the middle of, and post-trib, at the end of. So let's talk through these, these positions, and I'll let you guess at the end which one I ascribe to, okay? Uh, not that it really matters, because again, these are not essential doctrines. Let's talk about the pre-trib view first. This view shows that the rapture takes place before things get really bad. Now, this is a prominent, very prominent view here in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, DFW in particular is very, very prominently pre-trib, and that is primarily because of the work that has come through a very solid theological institution known as Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, DTS. Top-notch institution, really some of the most preeminent scholars have come from there. I actually almost attended there. Uh, I ended up going to Southwestern instead. Um, but one thing they are known for as an adherence to pre-tribulational eschatology. Uh, this is incidentally also the view that is espoused in the Smash series, Left Behind, right? Where, where the rapture takes place right before the tribulation begins, and those that don't make the cut are what? Left behind. Okay, so we're on the same page. I would wager that a lot of people in the church in DFW have been influenced by primarily Dallas Theological Seminary, and I would wager that even a lot of people in the church in America have had some of their views of the end influenced by either left behind or some other media-driven avenue. And I will tell you that the majority of any media-driven stuff that has to do with the Bible is probably going to be a little wonky, all right? There's a couple. I haven't watched The Chosen yet. Here it's really good. I've heard great things about it. Um, the Passion of the Christ, really good, except for the weird Satan baby thing that happens. It's not in the Scripture. Um, uh, what, what is it? Noah? Is that, the, is that what it's called? Russell Crowe? Total trash, right? It's, uh, it borrows heavily from Jewish mysticism and all kinds of other weird things. What does the pre-trib argument look like? A pre-trib argument says this, that God would never allow His bride, the church, to suffer in the tribulation. We learned when we talked about ecclesiology that the church is the bride of Christ. The bridegroom will come back for his bride. He loves his bride. He dies for his bride. So why then would he let his bride suffer in the greatest tribulation of all of human history? Now, one response to that question or that argument is, why let her suffer at all? I mean, up until this point, 2,000 years later, the bride has certainly suffered a lot. 
Um, we, we have gone through all kinds of persecution and will continue to do so. Uh, Jesus even said, they hate me. How much more will they hate you? And so it's, it's an okay argument, but it kind of fails to answer that question. Why let us suffer at all if that's the case? Another argument comes from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where the word ekklesia, the Greek word for church, is found in those two chapters, and then after chapter 3, you never see it in Revelation again. And so uh, the pre-trib argument would say, well, ekklesia is not there because she ain't there. She's been raptured, because chapter 4 is when things start to get really bad. Um, again, there is a problem with that argument in that chapters 2 and 3 use ecclesia, but only to describe the local church, never to describe the universal church. So that John doesn't use it to describe the universal church later in Revelation is consistent with his lack of usage in the first three chapters as well. Another argument is this, Romans 8.1, beautiful passage that every Christian should memorize. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the argument says, since the great tribulation is just that, condemnation, judgment on the world, how can Christians be present since there is therefore now no condemnation for us? And I think that would be a, a, a very good argument if and only if Revelation presented the church being condemned in the end. And I don't think that that is what Revelation is presenting. So if you, if you haven't figured it out by now, I'm not pre-trib. I'm not a pre-trib advocate. Uh, I, I do not think that that is the, the whole entirety message of Scripture. Uh, also, for those of you who don't know me well, my, my second master's in theology was in church history. I love church history, early church history to be specific, the first three to four hundred years. None of the fathers of the early church held a pre-tribulational view. None of them. Not a single one. It's not even a contested, it's not even a contested argument. Um, in fact, the first time you see a pre-tribulational view of eschatology written comes from a scholar by the name of John Darby. John Darby, kind of the father of pre-tribulational eschatology, who died in the 1880s. So when we talk about the pre-trib view, it is a about 150-year-old thing. It's pretty new in the grand scheme of the church. Uh, Darby was primarily a European itinerant teacher. Uh, his views on pre-trib eschatology made their way into America because another theologian read his writing and thought that it was compelling enough to adopt it for his own view, a man by the name of John Walverd. Walverd, at that time, was also president of, you guessed it, Dallas Theological Seminary. So DTS carries the sort of mantle of John Darby and pre-tribulational eschatology into their foundational understanding, and several of the presidents from that time have written on that as well. Now, let me just say, many of you are probably pre-trib. If you, if, you, if you had to think through how you think about the end times, this is probably where you land because, again, so many churches and so much in DFW especially have been influenced by this. And if that's where you are, and, and at the end of this sermon I haven't convinced you otherwise, then we could still be friends. Um, but this is a, uh, th these are the problems in my mind with some of these views. Second one is mid-trib, a mid-tribulational view. Um, I am going to say very, very little about this one, and here's why. It's a minority view. Not many people hold to it. There are not many scholars arguing for this position, none that I know of, in fact, right now currently. Um, 
you have to do some weird math, and there's a couple of other theological things that come along with this that we don't have time to talk about this morning, but just understand that it's such a minor view that I don't feel like it's really even worth arguing for because there's not many arguments for it, okay? So can we agree to just pass that one and move to post-trib? We're going to anyway, so hopefully you're fine with it. Post-trib. So if pre means before and mid means in the middle of, post means after the tribulation, this is the position that I hold uh, I believe this is what the scriptures teach by and large. It's the position of the Christian church for nearly 1,800 years. And uh, I think it's the most consistent with the Bible's message for Christian life in general, right? So one of my favorite passages, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you live your best life now. That's not what he says. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reality is what Scripture teaches is that trials and tribulation, not great tribulation, but just in general, are the means by which God uses to sharpen us and shape us into the image of Christ. We talk about this all the time in the church. You know, we praise God when we're on the mountaintop, but it's when we're in the valley that God is doing most of His sanctifying work. It is in trial. We say all the time things like, God will never deliver you from trials, but He'll what? Deliver you through trials. He will equip you to go through that thing that you are facing, and out of it, you will come out looking more like Jesus than when you went into it. So these, are, these are, are, are the kind of foundational understanding of how we view Christian living. It makes sense then that it would be applied to every part of Christian living, even the last things. Beyond that, we have to contend with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 presents some problems for us interpretively if we're going to reject a post-trib view. Jesus speaks of the tribulation at length in this passage. And he says things like, See to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And so the question becomes, why is Jesus saying this and warning us of this if we're gone? Why, why, are, we, why are we worried about that? Matthew 24, 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will put you to death. He says there will be talks of a, the abomination of desolation, which Daniel prophesied thousands of years prior. And Jesus talks about this, Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We are going to see with our eyes the abomination of desolation take place. We are going to flee into the mountains when this happens. Why are we fleeing if, again, we're not here? But wait, there's more. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is saying the great tribulation is going to come, and it is going to be bad, and if not for the elect, it would be a lot longer. But for the sake of the elect, they're going to be cut short so that everything that should take place happens, and right after that, it's over with. Now, the elect, folks, is the word consistently used throughout the entire New Testament that means the church. Christians, the elect, the elect of God. The final statement comes in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. 
Immediately after the tribulation, so this is after the great tribulation now, of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is the second coming. This is how it's described in every other place. And then it says in verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud what? Trumpet call, just like Revelation describes, just like we read over in those other passages. And they, his angels, will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The church brought to him in glory, enduring tribulation, and brought to him as he comes back. It's very clear from Jesus' words what he's talking about here. The simplest reading of this passage indicates that we are here. We are around. Now, there is one last reason why I hold this view, and and it is as compelling to me as Jesus' words in Matthew 24, and it's what I would call the Exodus connection. The Exodus connection. For those of you who know me well, you know I love the Old Testament, and uh, I love seeing how the New Testament understands the Old Testament. And when you read Revelation, what you find out is that John is going to borrow a lot from the Old Testament. He's going to quote and allude to several passages of the Old Testament, none more than Exodus. Exodus is the most cited, most alluded to Old Testament book in Revelation. There are a lot of parallels that we find. Let me give you some of them. This is an Exodus, okay? In Exodus, you have God's people being persecuted by the kingdom of Egypt. Remember, they're trapped there, they're enslaved there by Pharaoh. Some of them are even being put to death as a result of the persecution that they are facing under the kingdom of Egypt. You have a faithful witness that is raised up by God in Moses who comes and performs signs and wonders. You have a number of judgments by God on Egypt and each one grows in intensity. You have the frogs that come out of the Nile. You have lightning and thunder and hail in one of the judgments. You have magicians, court magicians of Pharaoh, performing false signs, trying to lead people astray. And finally, you have the mark of the lamb in Exodus, which is the sacrificial lamb that they take the blood and put over their doorposts so that the angel of death, when he comes, passes over the people of God and thus they are protected from God's judgment upon that kingdom. They're in the kingdom, but they're protected from the judgments on the kingdom. Okay? All of that is pictured in Revelation intentionally. All of it, every single thing that I just said. God's people being persecuted by the kingdom, not of Egypt, but the kingdom of the beast. And many of them are even being put to death as a result of this persecution. You have two faithful witnesses who are performing signs and wonders. I believe this is the church, by the way. I'll say more about why in a moment. You have a number of God's judgments coming against the kingdom of the beast, and each one of them grows in intensity. You have the seals, which affect the half of the, or a third of the world, the bulls, which affect half of the world, and then the trumpets, which affect the whole world. You have evil spirits in Revelation coming out of the Nile River that look like frogs, and they are performing false signs and wonders just like the court magicians did in Pharaoh's court, leading people astray. You have lightning and thunder and hail in one of the signs. And then you have the mark of the Lamb in Revelation 7, which covers the people of God and protects them from the judgments that are being poured out onto 
the earth. We talk a lot about the mark of the beast. You Christians talk a lot about the mark of the beast. We rarely talk about Revelation 7 and the mark of the lamb. It says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed all of the servants of God on their foreheads. This is what protects us from God's judgments. The people of God endured in Egypt as they were judged and were delivered out of it, just as the people of God will endure tribulation in the last times and be delivered out of it without facing judgment. Now, let me be clear about something. We do not endure God's judgment. The mark of the Lamb protects us from that. So understand that if you're in the kingdom of the Lamb, the great tribulation means something very different for you than if you are in the kingdom of the beast. If you are in the kingdom of the beast, you are facing God's judgments as they are being poured down in each of those curses. If you are in the kingdom of the Lamb, marked by the Lamb, you are protected from God's judgment. Your tribulation comes from the persecution from the kingdom of the beast. They seek you out, they kill you, they want to destroy you, they want to eradicate you. So our tribulation, our persecution that we face comes from them, their persecution comes from God, and we are protected from that crossfire. And then what happens after it's all over with? We're perfected, we endure, Christ comes back at the sound of the last trumpet, we are caught up in the sky together with him, made into our heavenly bodies in the blink of an eye, and then given front row passes to the greatest fireworks show that had ever existed in human history. Yeah, absolutely, amen. Now, did I win some of you over? Come to the dark side. Come to the dark side. I will win you over. I believe this is what the whole of Scripture teaches. It supports that there is a great tribulation that is coming and that we will exist within it. And that for our sake, it will be cut short. It will be only as long as necessary that we will be protected in it from God's judgments, that we will be perfected through it, and that we will be caught up in the sky in the rapture after it's over with and reign with Him forever, which leads us to our third point, the millennial reign. The millennial reign. What is the millennial reign? Millennial means a thousand, a thousand. It comes from uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the thousand-year reign that, that is referenced when we say the millennial reign. So put it together on the timeline. Things get bad, tribulation happens, the church endures and is perfected through it. Christ returns, raptures us up into the heavens, judges the kingdom of the beast, and imprisons Satan and sets up his kingdom on the earth. Satan is thrown into a prison for a thousand years and he sets up his kingdom on the earth to reign here on earth. Now, I'm going to say something again that is going to shock some of you. So just bear with me, and I will explain why I think this. I do not believe this is a literal thousand years. <gasps> There's a reason why. I believe that Revelation is written in a way that is intended to be understood figuratively. What I mean by figuratively is that there are figures of speech in it that point to deeper meanings. When, when it talks about Christ being the shepherd and we are the sheep, we're not literal sheep. It's a figure of speech. Christ works with us and leads us and protects us in the same way that a shepherd shepherds a flock. Got that? That is how Revelation is intended to be read. It's apocalyptic Jewish literature. That is the genre that it exists, exists within, and it is intended to be written or read that way because that is how it is written, figuratively, okay? John is very Jewish. 
He writes in a very Jewish style. He borrows from the Old Testament extensively. And on top of that, when we understand Jewish literature and how they understand numbers, that should say something to us about the way that we read numbers in Revelation. I don't believe that the numbers are literal in Revelation. And I will tell you why. Here are, here are a few important numbers in Revelation and what they indicate or what they mean. The number seven. Here's the first one, the number seven. It's a number of perfection. How many of you have heard that? The number of God, right? The number of perfection, seven. That's an important number. Anytime seven is used, it's typically with regard to God and the perfect order of things. Then there's the number three. This is a number of emphasis in Revelation. So you see things like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's to emphasize the holiness of God. You have the Trinity, the triune nature of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, emphasizing the wholeness of God, the perfection of God. Then you have the number four. The number four represents the world, the earth, anything in the world system. Whenever you find that number in Revelation, typically is related to the earth in some way. You have the number 12, which represents the people of God, the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Jerusalem, you have the 12 pillars and the 12 gates, which are intended to, to stand for the apostles and prophets. You have the number six. Let's talk about this one for a minute. The number six. This is a number that is typically used to represent the beast, who is Satan, the devil. Uh, the number six is a number that represents an imitation of God, but falling short. So six is trying to be seven, but it falls short. It's six. Okay? That sounds funny, but just hear me out for a minute. People have tried to identify, there's a passage in Revelation that talks about who the Antichrist is. He is 666. And people have done all kinds of crazy things to try to identify who this, this person is by, by like Jewish numerology and, and like equating that to the English alphabet and all the way from historical things like the, the Emperor Nero. They try to make a case for that. His name in Latin has some corresponding effects to the number 666. My favorite one, just because of how ridiculous it is, is uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan. There were people that believed that Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist because his name has six letters in each of his names. Now, let me just say as a side note, do some math right now. Look at your own name. We might be holding you suspect real quick. <laughs> Woe to you who have six letters in each of your names. I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think that the number 666 is, again, intentionally used to demonstrate the emphasis of Satan consistently trying to make himself like God but falling short. And we see it happening over and over and over again in the, in the book of Revelation. He has his own unholy trinity in Revelation. You have the beast, the dragon, and the false prophet. So he's, he is presenting himself in triune form, trying to be like God. You have what seems like death and resurrection at one point. Uh, Revelation 13.3 says one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. What is a mortal wound? A wound that kills you, that you die from. But its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This sounds to me like fake resurrection. Like people believe that he died, but then suddenly raised from the dead. He must be the Messiah right? He must be. So the whole world begins to marvel and follow him. He is 666 specifically because he is not 777. He can't be. He never will be. He will always fall short of power and supremacy. 
and he will one day be undone by that. And then you have the number 1,000. 1,000 is another really important number in Revelation. It's an intensifier. Everything that it is connected to, again, make, it just means a lot, a whole lot of whatever that thing is. So here's what I, I think. I think the millennial reign is just going to be a really, really, really long time. I don't know that it's going to be a thousand years exactly. I don't know that any of us will care, frankly. It's just going to be a really long time. Let me say in addition to this, for those of you who feel a little uncomfortable about that, and I get it. Some of you have probably been raised up in an understanding that is very different than this, but let me give you some dangers of a literal reading of Revelation. The danger is, who gets to decide what is literal and what is figurative? Who makes that decision? Jesus? Right. That's not the right answer. Um, that gets you in a lot of... If, if your answer is, Jesus told me, then let's talk. How about that? Um, if he told you in print, in the Word, then amen. Um, here's the issue, is that people who read it literally don't read the whole thing literally. You don't. I know you don't. Because of passages like Revelation 13, 1 and 2, that says, I saw the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, and ten crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. This sounds like Dungeons and Dragons, if we read it literally. I've never met someone who thinks that the beast is literally going to have ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on each of its horns. That's a figure of speech. There's some meaning in each of these elements, and if you want to come to my Revelation seminar later this year at Refuge Ranch, then do so. I'll announce the dates when we, when we announce it. But there's a reason why this is that way. We don't read that literally. So the problem then is when you read it literally, you are the one in charge of deciding what is literal and what is figurative. Well, I don't read this literally because that would be ridiculous. Says who? Says you. And that's a dangerous place to be in interpretation. I would rather apply a principle of interpretation to the Scripture that is consistent across the board. When I come to Revelation, I come to it figuratively. That's the way I approach it, unless it is very clearly literal in a way that it cannot be argued any other way. That's my approach to this. It's the one that I think is the safest. So let's put it together. We'll end here. we got one more after this. Things get bad. Tribulation comes. The church endures, we're perfected through it, Christ returns, raptures us up, we're given heavenly bodies, judges the kingdom of the beast, he imprisons Satan, he judges the world, sets up his kingdom, he reigns for a very long time, and then what happens next? We close here with the final judgment. The final judgment. There is coming a day of judgment. You need to understand this. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul, speaking to the Athenians, says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. So he's been looking away at our ignorance. But know that he commands that all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. One day God will judge the entire world. But before he gets to us, he deals with Satan. Remember, Satan is in this prison for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 7, it says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released 
from his prison. And upon his release, Revelation tells us that he begins to build his armies to once again try and bring war against the kingdom of the Lamb. The difference is, this time, Christ is reigning on his throne here on the earth. And so he doesn't get very far. As a result, Revelation 20 verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then comes judgment day. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. Earth and sky fleeing away. You can't even imagine that. It's unimaginable. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. This is the night of the living dead on steroids. Every dead person ever standing before the throne. Verse 14, and then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. You see, if any part of eschatology matters, it's this right here. This is it. Whether you, it doesn't matter where you stand on pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. It doesn't matter where you stand with regard to a literal thousand-year reign or a figurative thousand-year reign. It is all irrelevant. It really is. It is completely non-essential. But where you stand when the book of life is opened and judgment occurs matters for eternity. It matters for eternity. Listen, if your name is not there, you end up in the lake of fire. You need to understand that this is actually going to happen. God will one day judge all of us. Your life and your decisions matter a lot. Do not hear this, people of God, and leave and go live your life however you want to live it. God will one day judge us. And the only hope that we have is what we talked about last week, the propitiation of Christ for our sin, the redemption in his blood that buys us, that purchases us out of, that ransoms us out of captivity, the imputed righteousness of Christ that comes on and into us, that we become his righteousness, and the reconciliation that restores us back to right standing with the Father. Apart from that, you are without hope. Have you bowed your life before him? Have you given up control? Have you, have you said, enough is enough. I'm no longer the captain of my own ship. I will bow before you as Lord and Savior. Because I'll be honest, man, in the Bible Belt, some of you make the dumbest sinful decisions and then you think because you pray and you go to church that you're okay with God. And you're not. That's not the testimony of Scripture. That's not what gets it done. Is He your Lord? Is he your Lord? Is he the Lord of your life? Because this is going to happen. You need to know that. This is going to happen. Everyone here in this room will have eternal life. But this determines where you spend it. Either with him or in the bad place. And it is my job to stand here and warn you of that. So that when I go before him, I can say, yes, Lord. 
I told them. I pleaded with them. I begged them. Will you respond? Will you bow? It's all fun. It's all interesting. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. We didn't even talk about realized and consummated eschatology. There's so many things in this category we could spend weeks on. None of it matters except for this. This is where it matters. Where will you be standing when the book of life is open? I pray it's covered by the mark of the Lamb. Pray with me. Lord, we bow before you, humbled again every time we open your word. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're grateful for the testimony of Scripture and for your Holy Spirit that brings illumination to these things, God. And I just pray that, that as interesting and as fun as all these other details are, God, that, that right now your Holy Spirit would, would begin convicting those who have maybe never bowed before ever, who right now, if the book of life were opened, would be separated from you for eternity. I pray that you would move in a powerful way and that they would respond, Lord. As your scripture says, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. I pray for soft hearts, Lord. I pray for those who are without hope to come into hope this morning by a simple step of faith to bow before you and be born again, born anew, given your Holy Spirit a new life. Lord, we love you. We're not worthy. We understand that uh, we're not worthy of any of this. It's all grace, and it's all so good. And so we thank you for that. I pray that our gratitude would reflect that in the way that we carry out our lives, not only with one another, but with the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Let me give you a quick run of the mill of where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Uh, one, obviously, I didn't say this, I don't think. James obviously was not here with me this morning. He uh, had a several things to do with Fearless Series this week. And given my recent uh, working with eschatology through a, a New Testament class that I taught in here on Wednesday nights, um, I told him, man, take the week off, figure that other stuff. I'll, I'll, I've got this. And uh, next week, this coming Sunday, is VBS Sunday. Chris and Emma Cunnington are going to be coming up, our children's pastor and outreach pastor. He'll be coming up and sharing some things about VBS and why we do it, and then some of the results of it as well, which would be really great. And then the following Sunday, uh, James and I will be back here on the, uh, the preaching table, and uh, we're going to be getting a new series, but I'm not going to tell you what it's over. I'm going to give you one more week to sweat it out, so you got to come next week and find out. God bless you all. Thank you for being here. Happy Father's Day. We'll see you next time.